antlers. The amateur who had thought that it was just a lavender-colored agate that really wasn't particularly beautiful had overlooked it. As we continue in our series through the parables of Jesus, we come today to the parable of the treasure in the field and the pearl of great price. Jesus uses these stories to provoke the question, what is the kingdom of God worth to you? We are every day examining our lives and the things in them, assigning values to them. We even do this with relationships. And we, narcissistic as we naturally all are, we want to know what we are getting from others. We place values on everything. As we look more closely at these parables, we see that Jesus is teaching us to reevaluate what we hold to be valuable. And to ask how much we are willing to give to obtain something of incomparable value. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. Look at two short verses from verse 44 and 45. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has And buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we thank you for your word, for it is life to us. We ask that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that understand, so that we may behold wonders therein. We pray this in Jesus' strong name, and amen. The kingdom of heaven is like, again, Jesus is drawing a comparison from story to explain what the kingdom of heaven is like. This time Jesus tells the story of a man who finds a treasure in a field. No mention of how he came upon this treasure, what he was doing in the field. It's not important. This was a common enough experience because they do not have lock away their valuables. The best place is in the ground. Now, unfortunately, if you don't tell somebody where you buried it and then something happens to you, There your treasure lies. It remains in the ground, never to be found again unless some fortuitous person happens to be digging in that field. And that's what happens. So out of great joy, and that joy will be important, and we'll look at that in a moment, but out of joy, this man who finds this treasure, he sells everything so that he can buy the field and possess the treasure. The finding... It's, it's really important for us to notice that the kingdom of God is like all of that. It's not just the treasure. It's the finding, the hiding, the selling, the purchasing joy. That is what the kingdom of God is like. All of that. Not just finding the treasure, but the whole process. And Matthew is the only gospel that includes these parables. And their back-to-back nature serves to highlight Slight nuance between the stories. They're not exactly the same. They have the same emphasis. But in the second one, we have a pearl merchant who is on the prowl. 
Now, he's not just happened upon a pearl. He's actively looking for it. He is seeking that pearl. Nevertheless, he finally does find that one pearl of incomparable value, and he too goes and sells everything so that he can possess it. Again, the kingdom is likened to the whole action, the seeking, the finding, the selling, the purchasing of the pearl of great price. That's what the kingdom of God is like. There are at least two main points that these parables are driving us towards. The value and the cost of the kingdom of God. And as we look at these in their turn, the value of the kingdom of God. Why is it that someone would give up everything to possess a field that has this treasure in it? It must be valuable. How valuable? Why is it valuable enough for him to give up everything? These men in the parables come across something that they recognize as valuable. The first man finds it almost by accident, but the other one is seeking for it. He knows it's out there. He doesn't know where it is or where to find it, but he's looking. How do you place value on the kingdom of God? I mean, how do we even answer that question? In terms of value, the very term itself we've seen is hard to translate and it's even more complex to understand. What is the kingdom of God? It sounds so nebulous. How do I put a value on that? When we hear kingdom, we think of realm, like Great Britain. We think of subjects of people right under a king. And this is why I've said it's best to think of the kingdom of God in terms of the rule or reign of God. Jesus has already filled out much of what this looks like, right? We've already looked at several parables showing us different aspects of the kingdom of God because it's complex, right? It's not something that can be explained by one story. And Jesus is telling parable after parable, giving us the nature of the kingdom of God. To do, we need to do a little thought experiment for us to, place of value on the kingdom of God. We need to sort of fast forward towards the end, the view of the kingdom of God from the perspective of the consummation when Christ comes and puts everything right. That will help us in the already to understand this value. As far as the kingdom is concerned, we are anticipating that it's going to be characterized by peace. It's going to be a, a place of peace where we'll be beating our swords into plowshares and there'll be no more pain or sorrows. In in the revelation of Jesus Christ, John says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Amen. I'm longing for that time when when we are pain-free. And I know there are many of you here are waiting for that. It's also marked with blessings, right? Streets of gold on a scale, on a large scale. It's also a place where righteousness dwells, meaning there there is no sin. Can you imagine what it's like not to deal just with your own sin? Just with your own besetting sin that 
constantly trips you up and keeps you from close communion and fellowship with God, not to mention the sins of others against us. Can you even imagine that? It's a place of deepest joy and the most sin-free, pleasurable satisfaction. We can't even eat an enjoyable meal without turning it into an idol and worshiping it instead of the Creator. Right? We do this with all of God's gifts that are wonderful and are to be used to rejoice and glorify Him. But we turn them into things that we glorify themselves. What would you give to be there in that kingdom with no pain and no sin and perfect blessedness and enjoyment forever? What would you give? Someone came to you and offered you all that. What would you give them in exchange for it? I want you to hold that question in your mind. Did you notice that everything I described was a benefit of the kingdom? Meaning that it comes about because we're there. We're, remember, I'm talking about the consummation, when the kingdom comes in its fullness. But what will help us immensely understand Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of God and these parables in particular is to see that none of the benefits can be separated from the king himself. You'll notice that quote that I included from John Piper, the beginning of your bulletin, the reflection. He asks the question, Would you be comfortable in heaven with all of your friends and everything that I've just described? Would you be fine being there without Christ? Would you have the kingdom of God without its king? Jesus is driving us to see that the value of the kingdom of God is in the king himself. And Jesus is that king who is present right there telling them this story. The hallmark of and the reason for all the benefits of the new heavens and the new earth, the consummate kingdom, is that God will be there and we will be with him. Nothing else really matters. God is the king, of course. And I want to do a quick overview of biblical theology of God's kingship. Just tracing out from Genesis to where we are in the story now, so that we understand the ways that God is unfolding His rule, the kingdom of God, and what's so special about Jesus coming as He does at this time. God is the Creator, the Lord. That's the King. The Lord is the Sovereign the one who is over all things. He has created all things by the word of his power. And he made Adam in his image to rule this creation under his authority. Adam was to be a vice king, ruling under the authority of God and spreading the rule of God throughout all of God's creation. He was to mimic God in his creative potential, expanding the kingdom. But Adam didn't do that. He rebelled against God. Despising God's word, he wanted to function morally autonomous. He wanted to be his own king. He didn't want to rule under the authority of God's kingship. 
He listened to the lie of the serpent who was a usurper. Because of his rebellion, the whole of creation was cursed, including man, including us, so that we naturally hate the rule of God. We don't long for the kingdom of God naturally. We naturally turn away from it in sin. Now the good creation is marred under the rule of an enemy, a usurper who tempted man to reject God's rule. But right from the beginning... Right at the very beginning, even after man has done this, God promised that he would reverse that curse. To save his creation as we're under. And he chose covenants as a way to unfold that. First with Noah, saving him from the flood, preserving the godly line. But soon that was corrupted as well. So he made another covenant, this time with Abram. This was a special covenant, marking Abram out and promising him that he would give him a land, that he would make of him nations, and kingdoms would come from him, and he would be a blessing to the nations around. And this promise was reiterated with his son Isaac and his son Jacob, who became the nation of Israel. And then after a period of sojourning in Egypt, under the rule of the serpent usurper Pharaoh, In Egypt, God delivered his people and finally gives them the land that he had promised to Abraham. Now they are to root out all of the nations who refuse God's rule. They are to be new Adams, extending the rule of God, starting in Israel. They are to be a faithful people who honors and obeys the Lord from the heart because he is their king. We know the story. They had a very rough start. These things seemed to go better under David. Finally, a king that would do what God had wanted. He would be like Adam was supposed to. He would rule under God's authority. And he did. And he was faithful. And God was pleased with him. So pleased that he made another covenant with him. And he said, I will bless you and I will make of your name great. I will build a house for you that will last forever. You will never lack a man on the throne who will be king over my kingdom. But again, David's line failed. David's grandson was unfaithful and the kingdom was stripped from him. Then over and over and over again, Israel's kings failed to live under the kingship of God. They failed to be obedient from the heart and to honor God. They failed to extend the rule and to be a light to the nations. They too, like Adam, and in fact every would-be Savior up to that point, rejected God's rule, refusing to keep His laws, whoring after other gods. So God expelled them from His garden paradise of Israel. And He said, no more. You will not dwell in My land, and I will not dwell with you because you are an unclean people. And you have not obeyed my voice. And they were expelled from the land, exiled for 70 years so that the land could rest. But just like when Adam sinned, God had promised them over and over again that he would save them. And he would send them a deliverer who would bring them back from exile and would save them from their sins. He was going to be the Messiah, that great 
son of David. Finally, Jesus comes on the scene. As Mark says, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It turns out that the good news was that Jesus was the promised king who would come and save his people. But he wasn't just any king. He was God himself come in the flesh. And the way he would save them is by taking the curse that the first Adam had brought upon us all and bearing that curse in his death on a tree, suffering the penalty for all of our sins and the wrath of God. And it's just there that the enemy thought they had won. They had defeated the king again. But up from the grave he arose, victorious over sin and death and hell the power to reestablish the rule and reign of God. And just as God had done from the beginning, He exercised His rule and reign, this time not in one strip of land, but throughout the whole world, as by the Spirit, hearts are transformed, and Christ is exalted as King. Jesus' ascension into heaven as King is exercising His rule by the Spirit. In reality, his death and resurrection and ascension sealed that his rule and reign is complete. So that in him, the reality, breaking the world right now, is of you gathered here this morning and countless others who are gathered throughout the world whose hearts are turned to Christ as king. Then at the appointed time, known only to him, he will return and take possession of his kingdom, finally banishing those who reject him as king from his realm and issuing in that consummate stage. The kingdom and its completion with no pain, no sin, no suffering, perfect blessedness, and God himself dwelling with us. I've given you a broad biblical theology of the rule or kingdom of God because I want to ask, what is the rule of God worth to you? I can ask it better. What is the king himself worth to you? Is he the treasure of incomparable value that you would give up everything to receive? You see, for us to answer the question of what we would give to purchase that treasure, we need to know what it's worth. But Christ is not like other kings. Even those other kings who were supposed to extend the rule of God, like Adam and David and every king that came after. He's different. Christ establishes his reign in humility and then carries it out by grace. He extends his reign by his compelling love. A love that promises freedom from sin's rule over you. Not a love only in word, but a love in spilled blood and broken body. A costly love that offers rest and freedom. But all that the king of love offers cannot be divorced from the king himself. You cannot have Christ's benefits without Christ himself. 
And so as much as we are thankful and overwhelmed with all of his benefits, they pale in comparison with the beauty of having Christ himself. We have seen something of the worth of Christ as our incomparable treasure. The question remains, what is he worth to you? What would you pay? What would you give to gain that treasure? Does he hold the kind of value that he held for these men who gave everything to buy the field, to get the pearl of great price? The man who finds the treasure and the man who finds the pearl of great value both recognize the worth of the treasure that they are after. And they're willing to give and sell everything to possess it. The joy is unstated in the parable of the pearl, but it's unmistakably present. He couldn't have given everything he had to gain that one pearl if he didn't have joy. If he wasn't excited about it. Seeing the worth of that treasure, they joyously give up everything to have it. Would you? Do you? After hearing the incomparable value of having Christ Jesus as our Lord, it's hard not to say yes. Of course. Christ or I die. But notice these two men gave everything, literally everything, so that they could have this treasure pearl. The question is, have you considered the cost of the kingdom? I can phrase that even more simply. Have you considered the cost of following Jesus. In Luke's gospel, Jesus asks his disciples that very question, and he issues a warning as he bids them to consider the cost. Luke 14, verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build the tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he is enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to blame What king? Going counter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Hate my family? What kind of crazy is this, Jesus? I thought we were supposed to love everybody, even our enemies. But Jesus is acutely aware of how easy family allegiances will keep us from the course. And he warns that we must have single-minded devotion to Christ alone. No one sets out to build a house without writing a budget to make sure that they have the finances to complete it. But we have shifty ways of getting out of Jesus' simple commands. We do this jujitsu 
But we read it and we simultaneously interpret it to mean something wildly different. Dietrich Bonhoeffer gives this as an example in his seminal book, The Cost of Discipleship. He says, this example of a child, the father says to his child, go to bed. And the child knows exactly what to do. But a child drilled in pseudo-theology would have to argue thus. Father says, go to bed. He means you are tired. He does not want me to be tired. But I can also overcome my tiredness by going to play. So, although father says to go to bed, what he really means is go play. Right? This is what we do with the word of God. He, oh, he, it's not hate my family, obviously wants me to love them. So, you know, and then we rationalize it all away. And the simple obedience that Jesus calls us to is washed away in pseudo-theology. And we wrangle out. We cry legalism. And we get squeamishly uncomfortable around someone who has set themselves to follow Jesus. Ooh, you're so judgmental. Wow, are you perfect? And we spit on their holiness. We despise their devotion, right? But the message of these parables is not that you can have your cake and eat it too. You cannot be a dabbler in the kingdom of God. One foot in, one foot out. You have to be willing to be all in. He had to be willing to give up everything that before looked worth keeping. This man had a whole bunch of things that were valuable that he gave up to gain this treasure. He had held on to them for this long. They were of worth to him, but now they are nothing. He gladly gives them up to gain this treasure. The same with the pearl merchant. No doubt he had other pearls, but none of them compared with the worth of this great pearl that he would give up everything to obtain. But we want to hold on to this and this and, yeah, we'll take a little bit of Jesus on Sunday morning. Devote my whole life? Give up my livelihood? I don't think so, Jesus. I don't know if it's worth it. We have, until quite recently, been able to, in the church to coast along pretty well without much disturbance. We've had our little skirmishes, things that seem to threaten our comfortable way of life here in, as Christians in America, but nothing like what our fathers in the faith have faced. Giving their very lives staking them on the gospel and saying, I will not defect. I will not turn against my Christ and going willingly to the slaughter. Would you? Are you willing to give up that much of your comfort and your ease? Last Monday, men gave their lives for this country, men like my great-uncle Frank, who died on Omaha Beach on D-Day, who gave the last full measure of devotion. We laud their sacrifice, and we 
try to appreciate the freedom we have because of it. But were their lives worth that sacrifice? America is not the kingdom of God. I know that this will be blasphemous to say. America is not worth dying for. Neither is freedom or liberty. However, those are construed within our political climate. It's our willingness to lose those things, paradoxically, that we find life. For he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Jim Elliott, who gave the last full measure of devotion in service to Christ to bring the gospel to people who killed him. And you know the story. His wife stayed and there was a fruitful ministry there. And there continues to be. The world is littered with so-called treasures and pearls that claim to be of great price, but don't be swindled. Don't be fooled, for there is only one incomparable treasure, the kingdom of God and Christ as its king. There's only one cost to gain that treasure. There's only one cost. Everything. You have to be willing to give up everything in order to possess that incomparable gift, treasure, Christ. And he doesn't ask you to do anything that he wasn't willing to do himself. This is why the call of Christian discipleship is a call to follow Christ. Follow him where he already walked. But Christ as king, he didn't just throw money at the problem of sin and the curse of the world. He didn't just say, He didn't just send other people to deal with it while he enjoyed the beauty and lavishness of heaven. He came and he took on flesh and he dwelt among us and he bore his sins on on his body on the cross, a curse. The innocent God-man. He entered into our sin and sickness and death and our lost condition. And he literally walked a day in your shoes. He can sympathize with you. He knows your weakness. And he knows what it's like to lose everything. Has his father turned his back on him? Poured out his wrath upon him for the penalty for your sins. He knows what it's like to lose everything in order to gain the will world. He was willing to give the last, greatest full measure of devotion to ransom you from sin's rule over you. This is why he is the incomparable treasure, the pearl of great price. This is why Jesus is worth laying your own life down for, to follow him And the path that he trod, though it leads through suffering, it ends in that great kingdom dwelling with him forever. No sickness, no sorrow, no more death. It ends in a garden city dwelling with God in perfect blessedness forever. Will you pay the cost? 
Will you give up everything to gain Christ? Roy Wettstein, who found that star sapphire in a shoebox in Tucson, thought he had found the greatest treasure. He thought he had found something worth $2.28 million. But he returned the very next year to that same show in Tucson with his cut and polished 1,900-carat sapphire to find that the appraisers were not so taken with his find. It turned out that although it was a star sapphire, the first appraiser had misled him. And because it was the appraisers there said it wasn't worth than a couple hundred dollars. Roy went down in history as the cautionary tale of the man who thought he had a treasure, but it turned out to be nothing. Marginally better than a paperweight. Don't end like that. Holding on to all the stuff that this world says you need. And in the end, having nothing in your hands. Nothing in my hands I cling. Simply to your cross I cling. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. Consider the value of gaining Christ. Once you have, give him your all. He is worth far more than you would ever have to offer. But he gives himself freely to those who step out in faith. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the beauty, the majesty, the glorious treasure that is Christ our King. We would have Christ. We would be free of the clutches of all the things of this world. All those treasures and pearls that entice us and lead us astray. Father, give us Christ. We would have more of Him. We would have a greater measure of Your Spirit poured out on each one of us here. So that we may follow Him more faithfully. And as we do, Father... Make Christ that incomparable treasure of greatest value glorious in our sight so that all the treasures of this world pale in comparison with Him. We would have Christ. Amen. Amen, saints. Let's sing together as we prepare to meet Christ here at the table that He has furnished by singing, Come, Behold the Wondrous Mystery.